Our new campaign that we're starting today is called The Irresistible Gospel. Before I get into that, if my voice sounds a little crackly, and if John's voice up here sounds a little kind of dry, that's because he and I are coaching our daughter's soccer teams. <laughs> so we spent yesterday outside yelling at children on the soccer field. In a very kind way, we're coaching. We have to tell them where to go, and they don't know where to go yet. So, and they're like stealing the ball from each other, which is ridiculous. Uh, it's bizarre. It's the, still the herd in third to fifth grade. It's bizarre. So if our voices are a little dry, you know why. We're going to have to build into this. Okay. Campaign, it's called The Irresistible Gospel. Um, and I wrote in the description of this and how we all have these stories that we love to share. Uh, we love to tell these stories because they appeal to something deeper. They appeal to something that we are longing for uh, or an experience that points to how we've like, experienced something that we all long for. And that's the gospel story. And, and when I talk about the gospel, we use this in a lot of different senses to just talk about the story of Jesus. But like the four Gospels, but really, it, it all starts in Genesis chapter 1. Like, what Jesus does doesn't mean much without Genesis chapter 3 and without Genesis chapter 1. So it all starts back at the beginning of the story, and we're all a part of this big story of what God is doing in creation. And this story of the Gospel, my hope, is throughout this campaign for you to realize that this story is simply irresistible. Now, when I say irresistible, I don't mean that nobody resists it. Of course, people resist this story. But what I mean is it's so good. It is so good. It satisfies our deepest longings, our deepest desires in every way. It answers the biggest questions that we have. And so what I hope to accomplish throughout this campaign is for us to just appreciate the gospel more, to just love God more, to love being a part of this story that he is writing in history and to do what he has called us to within it. Now, to approach this campaign and this whole thing, what we're, what we're doing is approaching it from a more philosophical lens, philosophical perspective. We're not just going through each individual like, story. We're approaching it from the big picture story of Scripture. There's four components to every worldview, every meta-narrative, whatever you want to call it. Um, how you view the world like how you interpret the events of the world. There's four essential components that we all have to answer. Origin, where do we come from? How did it all begin? Meaning, what's the meaning of life? Why do I exist? What's the purpose for my day-to-day -day actions? What's my purpose? What's the purpose of all of it? Morality, how ought we live? <laughs> Destiny, where is it all headed? We all have to have answers for these questions. And I think most people do. They have kind of fuzzy answers to these questions, but perhaps they haven't been teased out or articulated very clearly in your own mind or to others. The gospel, what I'm going to describe throughout this campaign, is the gospel provides such satisfactory, comprehensive, compelling answers to all of these questions. Because you can't live a full life you can't live a life of peace without answering these big questions. And the story of Jesus, particularly, answers all of these questions for us. These questions, they have to not only be compelling, right? Make us feel good. 
But answers to these questions, they have to be rooted and grounded in truth. They have to appeal to reality around us that we experience every day. If not, they're not very satisfactory. We'll come to that in a minute. Now, the natural place to start, of course, would be origin. Um, but we're not starting there <laughs> because we have a guest speaker on September 24th. Sarah Schnacki is going to be preaching. And she picked origin. So I got booted. <laughs> So I'm going to be preaching. I'm going to be starting with morality, actually, today. <laughs> I'm going to take this week, next week, and maybe one more week after Sarah preaches to talk about morality. We'll see how it all shakes out. <clears throat> so, talking about the moral law today. Again, the question is, how ought we live? There's this set of standards that we all have for how we should be behaving, how we should be living, and what we ought to do. Now, you might even be thinking, like, John, I thought you were preaching on how the gospel is irresistible. <laughs> I thought you were, you were talking about how it's compelling. This is, this is not the irresistible part of it, right? And people don't like to talk about morals, right? We, we don't like to be reminded of the fact that there's this standard that we don't really live up to. It doesn't feel good, this conversation. But that isn't the only part about a worldview, a meta narrative, being irresistible, is that it makes us feel good. We'll come to a great quote by C.S. Lewis on this later. But it has to also appeal to reality. Okay. For example, I can. It made, it made me feel good when I was, when my kids were younger, when they were like two, three years old, and they would say things like, Daddy, you are the strongest man in the world. That feels good. Is that true? <laughs> uh, no, right? A cursory glance of the bros at the gym reveals this is not true, okay? And if I were to live my life as if that were true, it would produce some pretty bad results, right? If I were to challenge John Cena to a wrestling match, it would not go well for me, okay? I put that in your heads because I find that to be a funny scenario. <laughs> me trying to wrestle John Cena. <laughs> Don't know him. He's massive. He's crazy strong. Google a picture of him and you'll be like, okay, I get it. <laughs> in apologetics, uh, which is a, a field of study that attempts to argue for the reality of the Christian faith with logic and reason, often the approach is to start with the moral law. Because it's something that we're all familiar with, that we all kind of have a sense of, whether we've rejected it and denied it or not, but we all kind of have this sense that there is this over arcing standard that we are all held to. This is where C.S. Lewis begins in his great book, Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it yet, one of, I think, the best books ever written in the Christian faith. It's incredible. And this is where he starts. And he talks about how when people are quarreling, when people are fighting, very rarely will you meet somebody who says, when, when you're in an argument, right, the very fact that we're having an argument reveals that there's a moral law because we're arguing about what was right and what was wrong, okay? He says, 
When we're in an argument, think about it, we tend to say things like, what you did to me is not fair. What's this concept of fair? Right? Why do we all have this idea of fairness? Somebody steals your seat on the bus after you've gotten up and they just go ahead and sit in your spot, like, you'll argue that's not fair. If they were just sitting there when you walked in, you won't argue about fairness, but the same thing is happening. They're in the seat that you want, right? It's a different scenario. Say things like, I was here first. Why did you shove him? He didn't do you any harm. In all of these, we're appealing to this moral standard. The other person very rarely says, forget about your standard, <laughs> right? Like, nobody's arguing in the court of law, like, you know what, I think that this idea of murder is wrong, right? <laughs> nobody, nobody argues that. They're like, I should be able to do whatever I want. That's not where people tend to go. We all kind of have this innate sense that there is this moral law that we are all held to. And so as humans, we sense that we have this moral culpability. Scripture reveals this to be true in so many different places and in so many different ways, and I go through many more of them in the devotional. But for today, this is an aside that the Apostle Paul is writing in Romans chapter 2. He's talked to the Gentiles first, and now he's actually talking to the Jews who have the law of God. And he says, Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. He goes on, he says, They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. This is an idea throughout Scripture. The requirements of the law are written on the hearts of humanity. That we have this sense of the moral law in our hearts. And again, everywhere we look in society, we see this to be true. Their consciences also bear witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. So what he's saying is, even though the Gentiles don't have the law of Moses and the laws of God, when they live in accordance with those laws, they're a law to themselves, because the law has been written on human hearts. Because we have this innate sense of this moral standard that God has put in place. The general census in Western culture, at least as far as I can tell, for the last hundred years or so, has been to point the finger at the moral law as the problem, not to point the finger at us as failing to live up to the moral law as the problem. The thinking goes, again, at least as far as I can tell, if we could only do away with this pesky idea of a moral law and these institutions that impose the moral law, in the name of progress, then, we can free ourselves from the guilt and shame of failing to live up to the moral law. So you see, see what's happening? Does that make sense? You guys found tracking that? So we have this innate sense that there's a law, that we don't live up to it, but then the, in our sinful nature and depravity, what we try to do is say, like, actually, no, there isn't the moral law. We, we are deceiving ourselves. And so we point the finger at that as being the problem, instead of us for failing to live up to it. Okay, again, this, I'm getting to the, how the story of the gospel is irresistible because it appeals to reality and it deals with truth. The result of this has only been more and more depravity. See, throughout the history of the world, when this happens, it results in more and more depravity, more and more sin, and ironically, more bondage to sin, more guilt and shame that comes from that sin, sin which we started with the guilt and the shame and said, what's the problem? It's the moral law, not us. But 
Ironically, we kind of come back to more guilt and shame when we deny the moral law and try to excuse ourselves. So the answer isn't to deceive ourselves or to say, no, that doesn't exist. The answer is what Jesus says in John 8, 31. He says, if you hold to my teaching, meaning believing what Jesus says is true, the truth claims that Jesus makes, those are true. The ethical imperatives that Jesus gives us, those are the best way to live, and those are the moral imperatives that we ought to follow. Hold to my teaching. You are really my disciples, Jesus says. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Freedom is found not in deceiving ourselves and deciding what we think is true. Truth is found in actually, freedom is found in actually living according to the truth. The truth that there is a moral law, that we violate that moral law, and therefore that puts us at odds with the God who created it. Freedom is at the end of it, but it only comes when our ideas clash against the truth that Jesus taught and our ideas break apart. When our ethical imperatives that we have placed on ourselves and others smash against the rock of Jesus and his teachings, then there can be freedom. It's not in denying the truth. Denying the truth of the moral law, again, oh, another word picture that I enjoy, is like me sitting on a floaty, like an inner tube, trying to like paddle against a river, rushing with like uh, rapids, right? Like white caps, and it's like me trying to paddle against it, like, no, 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 Don't, it, you're going, right? Like, it's, it's like trying to resist reality, and it does you no good to resist reality. So in order to avoid this uncomfortable truth, what we have done is we've created these other foundations for morality. The moral law, uh, scriptural teaching, is called moral absolutism. Big word, but it just means absolute ethics. There's a standard that we all have to live up to, and we don't. Natural law, it's been called the moral law, absolute ethics. The other two ideas that we've come up with are Utilitarianism, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, I'm going to do a little more detail in the devotional, but simply it just means the greatest good for the greatest number. Uh, it's usually kind of couched in language of human flourishing, right? It's like human flourishing is the basis, so whatever is best for the greatest number of people is what we ought to do. That's our moral foundation, that's our driving principle for how we make moral decisions. The other one is autonomy. We hear this more often today than utilitarianism. This, what's right for me is right for me, and what's right for you is right for you. And we'll just let each other do each other's thing. We won't call each other on anything, right? If you know where, if you listen for these, in popular media, in songs, in movies, TV, listen for these. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Especially dystopian shows, they're all over. The Nazis are an example of why both of these fail, actually. They were incredibly utilitarian, justified eliminating those who were a drain on society, like the disabled, to better the lives of the majority. So they felt justified in their ethical opinion, in their approach of eliminating those who 
or consuming resources and not producing anything because it was better for the majority of society. It also fails on the autonomy test or challenges the autonomy test because who are we to say that the Nazis were wrong if they thought they were right? <laughs> okay. Okay, so you can quickly come to see, like, okay, we need a moral standard. We need something that is outside of humanity to say this is right, this is wrong. Okay? And this, again, is the teaching found in Scripture. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 16 here. I preached on this often in the last year or so, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, this is in the Garden of Eden, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, he tells him. So there's abundance around you. The picture is of the land just producing fruit, what you need. It's producing food for, uh, for them. But you must not eat. He gives them one imperative in the midst of this abundant provision, or one negative imperative, I should say. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You ever wonder why it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Like, isn't the knowledge of good and evil a good thing? So like, shouldn't it be good that the humans want to take that? But what's happening here is God is going to teach the people. God is going to teach Adam and Eve, the early humans, what is good and evil. And it's their responsibility to learn it from him, to not reach out and take it for themselves and to believe it for themselves, to create their own sense of right and wrong. That's why it's called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God was going to teach them in the law, but they decide to take it out for themselves. He says, you will certainly die if you do. And so we know that how that story goes. The humans take it for themselves. They attempt to define good and evil apart from God. Instead of listening to God's law and following the moral law that God has put in place over the universe. And so it leads to sin and death entering the world. What this is is a picture of Deuteronomy chapter 30 when Moses is talking to the people of Israel with the Mosaic law as they're entering into the promised land. He says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him. So again, you see the theme. Are they going to take out right and wrong for themselves? And are they going to believe it for themselves? Or are they going to follow what God says is right and wrong? to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. So here's the decision. If we're going to follow God's law or take it for ourselves, one results in blessing in God's, in, in his covenant with the people of Israel, blessing them into the land that they are going, causing them to increase. But, he says, the opposite if your heart turns away and you are not obedient and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and to worship them, disobedience is ultimately a worship issue. I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. Okay. So he's doing is setting up this same, same thing as Eve sitting in front of the tree. Are you going to follow what God says is right and wrong, or are you going to define it for yourself and live it for yourself? One leads to blessing and life. One leads to death. That is the decision. 
We see this all throughout Scripture, the Ten Commandments, the whole law of Moses. Jesus, Jesus boils it down to two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In the Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of oughts, because how you ought to live in the Sermon on the Mount. So this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Jesus thought so as well. The epistles, they give us a lot of moral imperatives too. It's all throughout Scripture. And it's all centered on this big idea that there is a moral law and we don't follow it. <laughs> we don't follow it. So I spent a good bit of time just describing how Scripture points out that there is a moral law. Um, that's the other second most obvious truth in the universe is that we don't follow it. Romans 3, 10 to 12. Band, you guys can come and get set up. Apostle Paul, he says more than this on this topic. I'm just going to give you the first couple of verses here because he, he goes into a lot of detail on it. <laughs> There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. You're like, John, this is a bummer. Like, <laughs> You're talking about how the gospel is irresistible. <laughs> That's what we're driving towards. But again, there's no use. It's not good for us to deceive ourselves, to live in this world in which we've created this false narrative that we're actually, that there is no moral law, that there, we can create right and wrong for ourselves, we can create the own basis for morality ourselves doesn't do us any good when it's so obviously true, when we know it's so obviously true deep down, and we know that this is true, that we don't live up to it. As Jesus said, there's truth, or there's freedom in truth. And so in order for us to get to how irresistible the gospel is, we have to start here with truth. We have to start with that there is a moral law, and we don't follow it, and we don't live up to it. I'll talk more on that when I come back up to apply this. While we're singing, if you guys need prayer, Michael's in the back, and he would love to pray with you, so just head back there. Allow me to pray for us now before we enter into a time of worship and praise. Father, Lord, we just praise your name. We glorify you. We thank you that you are the creator of all things. Lord, that you are the moral law giver. Lord, you have revealed your law to us in Scripture. And Lord, we cherish it. We love it. That there is a standard that we're not left to our own devices to define right and wrong because, Lord, we don't, we don't know. In so many instances, we don't know. But you have told us what is good. You have told us what is right. You have told us what is true. And so, Lord, we cherish that. We love that. And, Lord, we accept the truth that we don't follow it. So, Lord, now we just want to worship you. We want to praise you and give you honor and glory for who you are great and the awesome God. Let's stand. Let's sing praises to our Lord together. So I began, oh, I meant to begin. I don't know if I actually said it or not. Um, <laughs> I meant to begin the idea of this campaign of the gospel being so irresistible. I'm not necessarily arguing for the truth of the gospel with you. What I'm arguing for is that whether you're a Christian or not, that you should want it to be true. I heard Tim Keller say this in an interview before he passed, and he did a lot of apologetics, and he said, before you believe the Christian message to be true, you have to want it to be true. 
And so my point of this whole campaign is to say, like, this story, God's story that he's writing throughout all of history is so good. It satisfies all of our deepest longings. It appeals to reality. It is true. It makes sense of the things that we experience every day. And we should all want it to be true, whether you're a Christian or not. This story is so good. What we're talking about today is the hardest part to accept of this. <laughs> but in part, what makes it so irresistible is that it doesn't sugarcoat the situation. It doesn't sugarcoat what you know to be true. You know yourself. You know that what exists in here is not all good. But in our sinful nature, we're really, really good at lying to ourselves. We're really, really good at rationalizing our behavior, at rationalizing our sin. We're really, really good at generalizing our sin. In conversations with people, I often hear things like, well, I'm not perfect, but... And then what follows is usually either like an excuse or an explanation of why they're a pretty good person or the sense is that they're a good enough person. Which at the end of the day is irrelevant, right? Like, what, what is good enough? And, and you also know that you're not intrinsically wholly good as a person. So, so it's irrelevant, but in our minds, we deceive ourselves into thinking like, oh, but if I'm better than so-and-so, then I'm good enough. Or there's some arbitrary standard that we've created in our head that says if I'm this level of good, then I'm good with God. Like, what? That's not what God says in the Bible. And also, you know that it doesn't really matter. <laughs> because you know, and this is, this is why apologetic apologists start with the moral law. Because once you accept that there is a moral law outside of humanity, it's like a domino effect that falls right to God pretty quickly, to the God of the Bible. Even if you just follow it logically. But so often we just deny, we rationalize this idea of a moral law. And we just really try not to think about it. Because as Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I just recently read in John Ortberg's book called Soul Keeping. His background in psychology later became a pastor. He references a study that demonstrated how humans are driven by two primary motivations. Uh, we want to receive selfish gain and in that same vein, avoid pain. And we want it so badly that we're willing to lie, cheat, or deceive that is sin, in order to get it, what we want. You all know that's true about you. You've experienced it. If you have toddlers, you see it every day, okay? <laughs> that's innate within us. The second motivation is we want to think of ourselves as good people. 
So how do we marry these two seemingly inconsistent motivations? We simply deceive ourselves. And our mind lies to us, right? And we're quite good at it. So the antidote then, and what I'm driving at today for application is simply genuine self-examination. Look at yourself as you really are. Stop deceiving yourself. Stop lying to yourself. Stop trying to generalize it, to ignore it and not think about it. Because that doesn't do you any good. It leads to greater and greater bondage. Greater enslavement to sin. This genuine self-examination, it leads to these churchy words, confession and repentance. Guys, I keep coming back to this stuff. Discipleship is very simple in theory. Church has been talking about this stuff for 2,000 years. It's hard in practice, but simple in theory. If you want to grow with God, if you want to draw closer to God, genuinely examine what's going on in here. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't generalize it. Don't ignore it. Confess it and repent. That's where you have to start. So my prayer for us today is that the Holy Spirit of God would be ministering to you, that he would be removing this veil of self-deception, of lies that you tell yourself, that Satan and his demons tell you, And you would stop avoiding this uncomfortable truth. Remember, this is the hardest part of the irresistible gospel to accept, but it's absolutely necessary to start here. You don't get to the good news without this. The good news isn't very good if you don't start here. If our sin problem is a small problem, then God's redemption is a small redemption. God's grace is small if our sin is small. But if our sin is big, God's grace is huge. And it is huge. Only when we start here does the rest of the story look glorious and completely irresistible. But you must start here. Of course, if it's related to philosophy in any sense, C.S. Lewis said it better. Um, yeah, if you haven't read this book, you need to read it. It's so good. Lewis realizes this. When he starts with the moral law, people aren't going to be comfortable with it. But here's what he says. He says, all I'm doing is to ask people to face the facts, to understand the questions which Christianity claims to answer. And these are terrifying facts. Facts is referring to our, that there's a moral law, that God is the moral law giver. We violate that law, and therefore we have put ourselves at odds with God. Those are terrifying facts. I wish it was possible to say something more agreeable, but I must say what I think true. Because irresistible is not just what's agreeable, but it's what's true. 
what we know to be true, what we experience every day. Of course, he goes on, I quite agree that the Christian religion is in the long run a thing of unspeakable comfort, but it does not begin in comfort. It begins in the dismay I have been describing. And it is no use at all trying to go on to that comfort without going through that dismay. In religion, as in war and everything else, he lived through World War II. Comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin with, and in the end, despair. Guys, we live in a culture, we live in a world that's searching for comfort. We're pursuing comfort, we're pursuing luxury, we're pursuing an easy life, what we deem to be the good life. We're not pursuing truth. May that not be so for you. My prayer for you is that the Spirit of God would just stir this in you to pursue truth, to recognize the obvious truth that is in front of your face all day in your self-deception, in your deceit, and in your sin that we all experience. To not run from that truth, to not ignore that truth, but to come face to face with that truth. It can be painful, but like cancer, ignoring it does you no good. You may have to go through an operation in the hopes that it will produce healing coming face to face with our sin and confronting it through genuine self-examination, through confession and repentance. It's painful. It hurts. But it is the only place to begin. And I promise, the story is so good. God doesn't leave us here. He doesn't leave his people here. But it ends. It ends in comfort, but it begins in dismay but it's better than the alternative. The alternative is, as Lewis says, soft soap, wishful thinking, and despair, hopelessness. Remember the words of Jesus. If Lewis said it well, Jesus said it better. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you trust the way of Jesus is better than anything you can come up with? Do you trust that Jesus knew what he was talking about? And stop deceiving ourselves. Let's trust Jesus. Stop believing the lies of the enemy. Trust the truth of the gospel for who we are. In this truth, in Jesus, his teaching, who he says he is, what he says is true, the way he says to live, there is genuine freedom. freedom comes 
and what we're going to talk about next week. In how does God respond to this truth that there is a moral law that you and I have broken? That is the best news ever. But we can't move too quickly to it. Because so many of us in the Western church don't want to deal with this uncomfortable truth. And so we move right to the resurrection. We don't go through the death. We move right to life. And don't go through death to self. Before there's resurrection life, there is death to self. And this is where death to self begins. It's genuine self-examination, repentance, confession, knowing who we are. The Spirit of God, would you guys just close your eyes with me for a moment? Let's pray an honest prayer before God. Lord, you have given us your law. You have told us what is good. You have told us what is right, what is wrong. And Lord, we confess. We know that we violated your law. That we don't obey it. That Jesus, we know you teach in the Sermon on the Mount that sin is not just in our actions, but it's in our heart, what we desire. It's not just in murder, it's in hatred, it's in anger. Lord, we experience that all the time. So we confess. We're not going to deny it. We're not going to run from it. We're going to come face to face with it. That, Lord God, we have violated your law. And we repent of that. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. That you didn't leave us there for your promise that the truth will set us free. Jesus, you have died on the cross to redeem us, to save us, to take our sin upon yourself, that you upheld the righteous standards of the law, and you became a curse for us. You took the curse upon yourself, and you died in our place to redeem us. Lord, your grace and mercy is huge. It's overwhelming because our sin is overwhelming. The depth of our depravity is massive. But Lord, your grace and your goodness is so good that you would love us, that you would redeem your people, and that you would give us your life. So Lord, we live a life of gratitude, of thankfulness. And we thank you, Jesus, for your truth that sets us free. We don't want to live in lies. We want to live in truth. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.